What's up, Duke fans? Welcome to the Devil's Den podcast. I'm your host, Josh Smith, and I'm joined by my co-host, Roel Clement. Um, today, we're really excited. We got a great guest for you today. We're happy to have uh, Ben Golliver come on, Washington Post, an NBA writer since 2007. You might have seen his bubble ball book that just recently came out. He also co-hosts The Greatest of All Talk. A lot of experience with NBA guys. And, uh, you know, as Duke fans, I think we're pretty accustomed to that. We have a lot of guys in the league. The brotherhood is kind of, you know, a revamped term to to bring all that together. So we thought we'd have Ben on to talk a little bit about Duke guys in the NBA, um, his experience in Cameron, and just kind of hit on some things around the league and then talk a little bit about bubble ball. So with that said, I'll, I'll hand it to you, Ben, and you can kind of introduce yourself. Well, thanks so much for having me. First of all, um, you know, I, I do stick pretty tightly to the NBA lane, but it's amazing the inroads that Duke has right now. It's like every single night, maybe one of the headlines last night was RJ Barrett going off for the Knicks and he's starting to build a little bit of momentum. I think the headline for today is Cam Reddish got traded everywhere you look. Uh, it's Duke basketball players. And of course, on top of all of it, there's this idea of, uh, you know, Zion Williamson, what does his future hold? And is he going to live up to the expectations we all got when he was there in Cameron? Uh, you know, that's one of the biggest storylines, I think, for the balance of this season. I didn't even mention Brandon Ingram hits a game winner the other night, comes through in the clutch uh, uh, for the Pelicans, too. I mean, it's just night after night after night with these Duke guys. And, uh, you know, it's an exciting time, I think, you know, for the, for the draft Knicks as well, but also for, you know, guys like myself who are just NBA focused to see the, uh, you know, the, the density of, of Duke basketball in the league right now. Yeah, it, it's everywhere. Um, some guys that we've had have came out not so not quite as good as we kind of anticipated. And we've had some others that have really found a role um, and seem to be blossoming. You mentioned Zion. There's probably no better place to start than that. And before, I guess, we get into the NBA kind of experience and impact that he's had, I'd like for you to talk a little bit about your experience when you actually came into Cameron for the Duke Carolina game. Duke fans, you're probably familiar with that game. I think it was what roll 10, 15 seconds into the game, first or second play. Zion blows his shoe out and we have that whole debacle. What was that experience like for you, Ben? Well, I've been lucky enough to go to a lot of cool sporting events over the years. I mean, a World Cup, I think it's 11 straight NBA finals at this point and a lot of stuff in between. Orange Bowl, a couple of weeks ago, I saw Michigan just get destroyed by Georgia. But that game was right there near the top to me in terms of overall just memorable uh, experiences because it was my first extended time in North Carolina. So I was there for All-Star Weekend in Charlotte kind of drove across the entire state, saw Michael Jordan's high school, paid a pilgrimage to La uh, Laney High, was driving around, seeing all the different parks that MJ uh, you know, played out when he was a kid, trying to hone his craft, and then to kind of top it off with going to the Carolina Basketball Museum, but then uh, to go to Cameron and be sitting, I mean, dead center court. I mean, I got a picture from that game where like, you know, they're throwing the jump ball, Zion's going up for it, and I'm just right there on that line. Obama shows at the game up at the game. Somehow I have a better seat than Obama. I mean, I was pinching myself. This is like, you know, I feel like I won the uh, the Willy Wonka's golden lottery ticket, right? And I was so hyped up to see Zion because, like everybody else, you know, I'm a, a hype beast on Instagram. I watch all these videos from him in high school for years and years. And this is my first time getting to really see him play in person. Huge matchup against North Carolina. And of course, as luck would have it, I mean, the shoe blows out almost immediately. I'm sitting right there. It felt like one of those, oh, no, the world stop types uh, moments, you know, you just around the sports world because he's the projected number one pick. The hype has really been building for months and months. And like, how serious is the injury? 
And so, you know, meanwhile, I've got all these people in blue face paint draped all over my back, <laughs> and, you know, in a scene that I don't even know if they would still do, uh, you know, in this COVID era, you know, it feels like a time capsule because obviously that was the, uh, that was the old days, but uh, all of it was just so uh, overwhelming, I guess. And as a writer trying to figure out, okay, exactly what's going on, what's the nature of his injury, what are the implications from Nike's standpoint, from the basketball, uh, you know, business side, and then is Zion still going to be the number one pick? And I think, thankfully, most everybody left that night with a sigh of relief. You know, I think we found out by the end of the night that it wasn't going to be like season ending. It wasn't going to be catastrophic. So that was nice. But I do think, you know, as we sit here like three years later, I mean, the injuries have become the predominant narrative with Zion. And I think fairly so uh, because of the, you know, the the number that he's had and the number of games that he's missed as well. Yeah. And I think, you know, I don't want to put this out there, too, but in the back of my head, I'm, I'm fearful of hoping that we haven't seen the best of Zion already. Um, obviously, what we saw at Duke was historically good. I mean, the season from an efficiency standpoint. Um, everything that he was, I mean, some nights he was having like 30 points on 12 shots. I mean, just ridiculous oh, yeah. <laughs> type numbers. Um, no one in college could handle him. And then we see him get to the NBA started out a little slow, but then like that first game, that second half, he just goes off and it's like, cool, he's back. Um, and then, you know, whether or not it's just his conditioning, something with his health or just the dumpster fire that we call the Pelicans, um, you know, it, it's hard to tell where is he going to go, what's going to happen with it. So I guess we'll kind of start with that is, is Zion going to be a Pelican or is this just kind of, are we waiting for Anthony Davis 2.0? Well, the two things that I haven't seen from Zion in the NBA that I saw when I was there at Duke, one, the wide, easygoing smile. He just seemed like he was so happy and people always talk about him being like a big kid. He just seems so in his element. I mean, he's doing these 360 dunks during warmups just almost to show off to the student section, right? And try to get people hyped up. There was just such a fun factor around Zion. And then the second thing was the big time defensive impact. That was one of the reasons why I loved him. He is covering ground so easily. He's, you know, making those crazy block shots on three pointers where he's skying from the paint out to the perimeter and all that good stuff. And the NBA transition for him defensively, I think because of some of the low, you know, the leg injuries, knee injuries, he's just not as versatile as he needs to be on the defensive end to cover ground. And he hasn't always been in the best shape in the NBA. And then to me, and it's really hard to read body language. I haven't spent that much time around him, but I did, you know, I saw his debut game in New Orleans. I actually saw his last game before the pandemic um, hit uh, up in Minnesota, just coincidentally. And then I saw him in the bubble up close. He just never looked comfortable and never looked particularly happy. Something has always seemed a little bit off, right? And, you know, this season with the the way it started, very awkward uh, media day press conference where he's saying he's going to be back. Obviously, months later, he's still not back and he's dealing with these frustrating injuries. It just doesn't seem like we've ever really saw that Zion that we saw at, uh, uh, at Cameron, you know, consistently. Mm -hmm. And that's been a huge shame. And, you know, you just look at that number one and number two pick decision and you see where Jaw's at right now, you know, toast of the NBA, probably going to be an all-star starter, uh, you know, being viewed as, you know, potentially one of the future faces of the league. Jaw is living what we all thought the Zion experience was going to be. And that doesn't mean Zion can't get back there, uh, but it's certainly not how I saw this thing, uh, you know, playing out. I thought at this point, we were going to be talking about Zion as a you know a perennial first or second team All NBA type player, and uh, you know the Pelicans being a perennial playoff team where you know they're trying to win a series this year and take the next step, and instead they're just languishing, like you said. 
Yeah. And I don't know how familiar like all of our listeners would be with the dynamics of the Pelicans, but how much would you put, like how much of this is on Zion? How much is this is on the Pelicans? Cause for me coming in, um, you know, I don't want to say Griffin dropped the ball, but especially heading into that second year, I mean, you got Stan Van Gundy's coming in, JJ Reddick's there, Drew Holiday's there, Lonzo Ball, Ingram, you have young pieces, you have veterans. It seemed to be like, okay, Zion's set up to almost win now if we get anything close to what he was at Duke. So is, is this all on Zion? Is, is it Griffin dropping the ball here? If he goes somewhere else, does half of this stuff just magically fix itself? Where do you see the, the, the fault lie? Well, so you guys know there's haves and have-nots in, in college basketball, right? I mean, Duke might be the ultimate have. I mean, I don't know if you want to <laughs> rank the haves in college basketball. Duke might be number one there. Um, it's the same thing in the NBA. You know, you kind of want to say these things delicately, but, you know, the Pelicans have had a hard time uh, developing, retaining, and keeping top talent happy over the last 10 or 15 years, right? If you're just looking at what a typical Lakers game experience is like versus a typical Pelicans game experience is like, I mean, it's night and day. You wouldn't even think that these two organizations would be allowed to compete on the same level. If you're just talking about like the game experience, the number of people who are watching, the number of sponsors who are supporting those teams. I mean, it's a really, really tough place to turn around. So when Zion got drafted there, it was a huge burden. There, there's no question about it. And he's stepping into really big shoes left by Anthony Davis, where, uh, you know, there's a, a cynicism around that fan base where they're worried at times, hey, guys are always going to leave us. And then there's another side of that fan base that is very defensive and says, no, this guy's going to be the savior. He's going to be the one who stays and, and does what Anthony Davis didn't and what Chris Paul didn't. And for Zion, again, when you're a teenager stepping in with that, it's not like you're going to this blue chip program where everything's lined up and you've got nothing but five stars around you on every side, right? You got you questionable fit with Brandon Ingram. Um, as you're talking about, you know, Drew Holiday's there, but they wind up trading him. So it was already kind of in the works that, you know, there's going to be some turnover among his best teammates. And it's a tough spot for him to be in. I do think that Zion needs to own some of this, though, and especially when it comes to his conditioning. The talk about, uh, you know, the, the food, his food consumption, what he likes to eat, you know, like before and after games, just how he takes care of himself. That began even before he first played his, uh, his first NBA game. And, you know, that little chatter has basically continued all the way through. You know, you hear some people put some just obscene numbers on how much does he weigh during this current recovery. I mean, I think some of that talk is unfair to Zion. And it's like, if you're not watching him weigh in, you probably shouldn't be reporting that stuff because it winds up being secondhand and thirdhand. It gets inflated. But it's clear that he hasn't been in ideal conditioning uh, for them the whole way through. But I think to summarize what you're trying to get at, you know, millions of people, more than a million people watched his debut game against San Antonio where he hits those four threes, right? The Washington Post sent me down to New Orleans. First time they've sent me to New Orleans, except for an all-star weekend ever in my career, any outlet that's ever sent me to New Orleans to cover a game, it was for Zion's debut. This was like one of the biggest moments of the NBA season. And the Pelicans didn't sell it out. And I'm sitting here saying, how is that possible? You know, we've all been waiting for Zion for four months and there's empty seats and a lot of them, right? And so to me, that was a big red warning flag. And, you know, Zion's been flirting with the Madison Square Garden stuff and the New York stuff, but he, there's a moxie to him. And I spent around, uh, a little bit of time around him at Chicago All-Star Weekend right before the pandemic. I mean, he's rolling, you know, with 12 deep with security. I mean, he's... A big time, big time, big time star. He's a one name phenomenon uh, when he's playing well. 
And I, and I just hope he can kind of get that part of his career back on track and, and whether he's ever going to be able to fully blossom in new Orleans, uh, I wouldn't say no. You know, I think that Zion at some point is going to kind of outgrow new Orleans as long as he can stay healthy. Yeah. And you, you kind of hit on the fit with Ingram. Um, is that something that you think is just inevitable that it's going to have to get broken up or have we actually seen enough of it, of them together, healthy consistently to make that call? Personally, I've seen enough. Now, am I being a little too rash? People could make the counter argument. But when you have two front court players who uh, both are going to be better with the ball in their hands and are both minus defenders, that's a big problem. If you're going to pay both those guys max level money, it's going to be really challenging to build a roster around them. That's going to have enough offense defense balance to make it work. Right. And I don't even think this is a situation where either one of those guys is selfish. Right. Like, I, I think that they're both good guys. Um, you know, Ingram, to me, I think he he did not show the necessary day-to-day focus throughout last season to lift his team up. It did seem to me like he checked out a little bit on Stan Van Gundy, and he's checked back in this season, I think, especially recently, and it's been much more fun to watch him play. Um, but to me, it's just the the fact that neither one of those guys has been able to show that they can be plus defenders. And in the NBA right now, you need to be a multi-positional guy. You know, if you're a front-court player, you have to guard multiple spots. You've got to be able to step out. You got to be comfortable in space. You got to be able to switch and rotate and all these kinds of things. And Ingram just doesn't want it bad enough on the defensive end. Um, you know, he's going to be frustrating his coaches his entire career from that standpoint. And Zion at this point just can't physically do it. You know, he cannot close out to shooters fast enough. And when you get him in space, uh, he gets the happy feet. You know, and he commits some fouls because you know, quicker guards can just sort of go around him. He's not good enough laterally on the defensive end to, uh, you know, to, to keep up with NBA level guards. And so that that's going to be a persistent problem. And, um, you know, I, can they make it work to, to be a playoff team for sure? And so this is one of those things where like, you have to talk about expectations. If your goal is just to make the playoffs and, you know, try to win a series, then I think over the next couple of years, that's realistic for New Orleans. They can still do that if they get Zion healthy. He was unbelievable last season when he was healthy on the court, especially in terms of his positive offensive impact. But if you're saying, can these two guys ever win a title together? Are they ever going to be in that like great elite duos conversation? That's where I start to get really, really skeptical. Yeah, and and we'll move on because I don't want to take all of our time on Zion, but I'm really hoping that he figures it out somehow um, because you know it, I'm not that far removed from having him in that Trey Young, Morant, Luca, Tatum, the young kind of core, the Booker face of the league kind of guys. And at some point, we're going to get to kind of what have you done for me lately? And that's not going to be too great for him. So, you know, hopefully he can get healthy and, um, you know, get back on track. But I guess we'll move, oh, hey, we'll move on. Can I ask you oh, real quick ahead. a question on Zion? Just where does he stack up among like the Duke greats? Because so many of those players are like three, four year guys. You know, like when I think Duke, I'll be honest, the first name that comes to mind is probably Leitner, Grant Hill. I mean, those you know, just maybe my age is influencing that, but there's been so many great college players. Zion, just an incredible freshman season, but how does the fan base, it's kind of a tough spot for you to speak on behalf of the whole fan base, but how would you stack Zion up compared to some of those guys? Well, I think, go ahead, Ro. Yeah, yeah, I was just going to say, it depends on if you're a stats nerd or you're a narrative nerd you know what i mean um <laughs> so obviously somebody like grant hill or leitner has the narrative because they were there for four years but if you just start digging into the numbers 
of Zion's season, we really have not seen anything like that ever. And just the kind of excitement he brought too was enough that it almost overcame the lack of time that he spent in college. Right. However, of course, when you look at what he actually accomplished, yes, Duke won the ACC title, but that was it, right? They uh, got bounced in the Elite Eight. So I don't think fans 20 years from now will remember him like they remember Leitner. You know, young fans might appreciate him more than Leitner because they didn't get to watch Leitner. But overall, I would say that uh, those four-year guys would win out. Well, so, but he's, is he above guys like Kyrie, Tatum, like the newer generation guys? Would he be leading that pack or is that too high? I think so, personally. Um, I'll, I'll speak for myself. He's the only one of the one and done guys that has ever really like um, kind of broke that barrier for me in terms of like if we're making our Duke all time starting five or our favorite Duke players. He's the one that kind of transcended well it didn't matter that he was here one year and part of that was how good he was statistically the other part was just how personable he was you talked about his smile yep. he comes right in him and rj two alphas end up being best friends and just kind of those dogs on the court um you know he's blitzing passing lanes he's he's doing the dunks he even stopped doing like 360 windmill dunks before games because he said you know, if you're going to take all that attention and put it on me, I'm not going to do free throw on dunks anymore. You know, I'm just not. It takes away from my teammates. Like, That's you know, my you bad. Got, that, was, that was the first thing I wanted to do when I got there was film his warmups. <laughs> yeah. And, he, you know, but stuff like that, I think for me and like a lot of the fan base that like it's this whole kind of can you come here and unpack your bags, even if you know you're only going to be here for a year? Can you be bought in? Um, and he seemed to really do that. And obviously he was great. Now, the further we get into his NBA career, I think if that would have like stayed consistent and he's healthy and he's dominating and he's playing, I think you do see him kind of break through that even further. Now, it's starting the the conversation. It's quieter, right? Because he's just yep. not as in the forefront anymore. Um, he's also in New Orleans, so it's, it's not like he's injured in you know New York. It's New Orleans, so that that plays a role too. Um, the only other guy that really got close to me was you know first 10 games of Kyrie right like that right before he got injured what he was doing was just phenomenal you know and that's a decade ago too so it wasn't quite the same but I think it's hard because Duke has such the huge history you got the Grant Hills the Bobby Hurleys even the Jason Williams Boozer all these guys it's hard to become attached to just the one-year guy but I think Zion was the closest I've seen was that is that, that, fair, that makes bro? total sense yeah. that lines up with what i would expect that's good to hear too because he was a phenomenon he's also the coolest duke player ever would you agree by far right <laughs> i mean just the hair i wish he kind of would have like kept the like uh, i think he had it in high school for a little bit he was rocking that like early 90s like fade was going on i was like let's just bring it all the way back um but yeah what he was doing was just at that size, too, it's just it's fun. It's electric. You don't see guys stealing the ball at half court and doing a windmill dunk um, at Clemson, the team that thought that was getting him right. <laughs> so all of that, the swagger that he had, um, you know, it's hard to replicate that for sure. Well, you know, enough of Zion, I guess. So let's jump into probably uh, Duke's second best pro right now. Well, I guess that's a little bit debatable, um, but we'll, we'll talk about Jason Tatum a little bit. So 
if, if you are a GOAT subscriber, if you followed Ben and Andrew, or if you're around that, you'll know that, you know, 12-time Tatum sometimes gets a little uh, controversial. But I want to ask you specifically, and I guess it's out there in the in the NBA world all the time, but Tatum and Brown, can they coexist as legit title contenders? Or is this inevitable, too, that one's got to go? Well, I think it's a little bit of the wrong question about by the Boston Celtics, but you're right. It is the number one question that's being asked. First of all, they were title contenders for a couple of years already earlier in their career. They're making Eastern Conference Finals. They're winning an awful lot of basketball games early. The key was that they were in slightly different roles. Tatum is the kind of wing who needs to have a game-managing point guard with the ball in his hands, setting everything up, setting the table so that Tatum can focus on what he does well. If you want to give him uh, point Tatum responsibilities, if you want to really expect him to initiate the offense, it's not going to work, period. And he's not the only wing in that category. Um, you know, I, I think he gets compared, at least I compare him a lot to a guy like Paul George. You know, Paul George does a little bit more of that point guard stuff, but it's never going to get you to the title level that you want if you're asking him to do those kinds of things. And to me, it's not really a huge surprise because Jalen Brown can't do that stuff either. So when you just don't have a point guard for multiple years, you don't solve that problem. And to me, Kemba would just was really bad last year. And I think that kind of has already been forgotten. But, you know, Brad Stevens made the completely right decision to cut bait and get out of the Kemba experience as quickly as possible. It was just, you know, injuries were were limiting him too much and his lack of size and his lack of defensive ability. So before we could ever see Boston contend again, they have to get a point guard. They've cycled through a lot of them from Isaiah Thomas to Kyrie Irving, uh, Kemba Walker, and now it's Schroeder. I mean, I think of those four, given how well they've played, Schroeder's the worst of them. And so I think that's why you're seeing their record. It's where it is. Um, I still have faith that those two guys can, you know, be starting all-star level type players on a contender, but they're never going to do it without a point guard to kind of keep them organized. They need a, you know, like a younger version of a Kyle Lowry, like that kind of point guard to really unlock them. You know, you can imagine just switch Devin Booker in Phoenix with Jason Tatum and how much success is Tatum having alongside a player like Chris Paul. Those are the kinds of players that he needs to play with to really be able to leave his biggest mark and to do what he does well. I mean, you still see it. You know, he, he he's able to create shots off the dribble against everybody. You can try, try to double team him in late game situations. He's still going to be able to get his shot. Uh, but he's a good defensive player and people shouldn't forget about that as well. He's very team oriented on the defensive end, unselfish. He'll, he'll make the extra rotation. He's long. He'll get the deflections. Um, but until they have that piece, they're going nowhere. And I think that's that's really the, uh, the the tricky part for Boston is how do they go out and get that point guard? I don't have a solution there. I mean, they've tried every trick in the book these last couple of years, you know, going after Kyrie and, you know, cashing in a lot of draft capital to, to make some of these deals work. And I think right now they just might be stuck. Yeah, and that, that kind of answers the second part I was going to ask about what do you think the cause is for Tatum's struggles this year? Is it just the lack of point guard or is there something inherently else going on in his game? I mean, if someone were to look at the raw numbers, you might would say like, oh, he's playing really well, you know, but percentages, efficiency, some of that stuff has kind of really dropped off. Is it just the fit of the roster or do you think it's something in his game specifically? Well, yeah, they need somebody to create easy shots for him, right? I mean, or, or just better shots for him. Right now, they just really have no initiators, no creators. I mean, another guy 
who they wanted to put in that role was Marcus Smart. And I've been saying it for 18 months. I mean, that guy is not ever going to be able to do what you need him to do from a like run and offense perspective. And, uh, you know, Tatum, uh, the efficiency numbers are down. Now, that's not out of step with a lot of players uh, in the NBA this year. I would also, one of my pet theories is just like the Tokyo effect hangover. You know, you look at a lot of these guys, you know, Damian Lillard just had, you know, what could become season ending surgery, you know, could keep him out for the rest of the season. Uh, you know, you, you look at some of these other players who were in Tokyo, Luca, his, his numbers are down this year. Uh, you go kind of, you know, Chris Middleton, uh, Drew Holiday have missed a lot of time with injuries. I mean, I, I think that Tatum kind of falls in that category too, where like you didn't really get a true off season. It was such a rushed experience and it was a very uncomfortable experience over there at Tokyo, frankly. I mean, I'm sure the players had it better than I did in my like tiny little uh, Tokyo hotel room, but you know, it was time change, uh, lots of pressure and stress. I mean, you, you know, it's gold or bust expectations and then you're playing by international rules and, you know, you're trying to adjust to that as well. A lot of those guys had a tricky time over there. And so I think that some of that could factor in. You know, you've also got the rule changes this year. Um, and you've got crowds back in the building. And I think that's a, another reason why you've seen guys' efficiency numbers slip this season uh, among a number of star players. So Tatum's kind of on trend on, on some of these things. He's also been a streaky guy over the course of his career. You know, like he's had the situations where for two months he doesn't miss a three-point shot. He shoots like 60% on threes and he looks like an MVP candidate. And, you know, we could still see one of those type of runs from him uh, down the stretch of the season. But to me, it always comes back to the point guard for Boston. And uh, both his numbers and Brown's numbers would be better if they had a real lead initiator. Yeah, it, it seems like they lost um, not just a point guard, but Hayward too was a real connector. He was a nice passer who could kind of uh, you know initiate offense as well. So the one-two kind of thing of losing uh, Kemba and Hayward was big. The, the, the Hayward one to me, and I got a little bit of heat for this at the time, but you know, the Boston fans hype up Tatum like he's going to be a top five player for the rest of his career, right? And mm -hmm. my point when Hayward left was, if Tatum was really that guy, you know, if he is an AAA-list player, other players are not going to want to leave his orbit. They're going to want to go along for the ride. They're going to trust and believe that this guy's going to give them a chance to win a title. And so, therefore, uh, you know, they're going to stick it. And even if that means sacrificing a little bit on the contract, or even if that means, hey, like I have to have a little bit of a smaller role, which was the case for Hayward, where he just got eclipsed by Jason Tatum's rise, guys would stick. And I thought it was telling that Hayward didn't. Um, and I think part of it was Hayward was the connector, and he realized that you know both Brown and Tatum were not very good playmakers for their teammates, right? And so it's sort of a one-way street where like Hayward's feeding them, and maybe it's not coming back to him like he was hoping for. And, uh, you know, there was probably other family reasons and, of course, financial reasons for his decision, too. But uh, a lot of times, if you've got that young rising start, like no one's going to be leaving Memphis anytime soon. They're going to mm -hmm. all want to stick, get their contracts and play alongside John Morant because they think they're going to be able to compete for titles here for the next five years. And I did think it was interesting that Hayward uh, made a completely different decision there. And they do miss him as well. It's a great point. Yeah, and I know, like, just to to wrap it up, I'm curious, kind of, what your thoughts are. So, kind of disclaimer is, I'm a huge Kobe fan, right? Like, that was just the peak of my basketball experience, youth experience coming up, kind of on the back end of Jordan, and it just followed right in. Um, some of what I see for Tatum in the so shot selection and how he's playing is kind of that Kobe effect. 
And it's, it's funny because now we're even seeing like the Curry effect of we have guys like Marcus Smart out here shooting 13 to 15 threes a night. And it, it just goes to show the greatness of those guys and kind of how some of the fallout effect, like that early 2000s ISO ball where all of those guys were trying to emulate it. And all it really did was just reinforce how great Jordan was of how efficient he was able to do with that. And like no one else is Kawhi being one guy that in the mid range and what he's able to do can replicate that. But, you know, for a, a shot, the MJ was hitting at 42%. The average NBA guys probably shooting 27 to 29% on that shot. And so some of that, I think I'd like to see Tatum kind of get away from a little bit, um, just the way the well, game has evolved. Here's the thing. I mean, Tatum has patterned himself after like 31-year-old Kobe Bryant, and he needed to go back <laughs> further on YouTube and watch like 24-year-old Kobe Bryant, right? 23-year-old Kobe Bryant, because that guy was attacking the basket hard. I mean, that guy was dunking on people, 360 layups. I mean, he was a real, even in a crowded paint in a different, more physical, like, you know, defense-oriented era, Kobe was finding a way to put a lot of pressure on the defense. And I think that that's one problem that's been kind of like a perennial frustration with Tatum uh, is a lot of settling, a lot of long twos, a lot of tough twos, a lot of pretty technique twos where like he's got his one, two step, uh, you know, with the footwork and it's all very well honed, but is it the best shot for the offense? Is there something more he can do and give him credit? His free throw numbers are up this year and you do like to see that. And that helps balance out a lot of the, the three-point struggles. And so maybe he's compensating himself. But I do think like his version of Kobe is, uh, you know, a, a player who was 10 years older than Tatum is right now, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, I have, I love Tatum's game. Um, you know, I'm a big fan, but I would, like you, like you said, I'd like to see if we took two of those shot attempts a game and instead turn those into free throw attempts, take two of those long two step backs, you know, the pull-ups, um, and put him at the free throw line, I think we'd see his efficiency go, you know, way up. But yeah, the other guy he should study is actually DeMar DeRozan. I've never been the world's biggest DeMar DeRozan fan, but if you're saying guys who have great footwork, who have deep packages, who are really good uh, outside shooters and they're comfortable taking those mid-range jumpers, but who also has now mixed in this really high volume free throw rate, you know, I mean, DeRozan just lives at the free throw line this year, right? If I was Tatum, I'd be looking at a little bit more of that tape. How can I get myself to the free throw line more often using some of Jamar's, uh, you know, tricks and, uh, and uh, you know, other uh, skills? Because there's some comparisons there in terms of how they move with the basketball, how they, you know, use escape dribbles to get shots and those kinds of things. And, you know, there's not really a good reason for Demar to be averaging way more free throws than Tatum for their, uh, you know, for their seasons. And DeMar's also become a really good passer as time has gone on, too. So maybe that's something Tatum could take as well. For sure. You, or you'd love to see it. I mean, I, I'll be honest. Like, I like Tatum's game. I've kind of given up on him on that stuff. And same thing with mm -hmm. Jalen. Like, I just don't know if they're ever going to figure that part out. Um, but I, I think some of that is just a backlash to how much hype they got from the Boston media. You know, I mean, right. <laughs> there was a while there where Tatum was walking on water and he was going to be Magic Johnson and Kobe Bryant and all these different guys combined into one. And it's like, come on, guys, we let's slow this down just a little bit. Let's make them prove it first. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy to see the effect of different markets. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> well, going back to Zion, I mean, imagine if Zion was a Celtic, how much more hype he would have gotten, you know, coming in. I mean, it's it's a real factor. And how angry Celtics fans would be right now uh, with the way he's treating his own body, right? <laughs> mm. they, they run him out of town, wouldn't they? Or even to kind of transition into Kyrie, um, I feel like 
what's going on with him hasn't been as big a story as it would have been if he was in Boston right now. 100% or imagine if they had teamed up on the Knicks, you know, that's the other one. Right. Where, uh, you know, that would have been basically, I think the pressure would have mounted to the point where it's like, I'm not sure he would have even been able to make the decision that he made, or maybe they would have been forced to trade him or it would have handled, uh, you know, played out differently. The Kyrie situation, um, to me, it's a shame. And primarily looking at that through the Kevin Durant lens, like he made a decision to team up with his buddy to chase titles and to just have it play out this way where everybody's in this constant state of uncertainty where they play so well that they leave Chicago just, they left them for dead last night. I mean, absolutely killed them. Harden playing phenomenal, KD playing phenomenal, Kyrie on the court as well, didn't have the best game, but his presence out there making their offense, uh, you know, click at a higher level for sure. And then, you know, a couple nights from now, Kyrie's going to have to be sitting on the sidelines. Or the other night on Friday night, they play Milwaukee, Kyrie's out, you know, it's this huge showdown game. Milwaukee, you know, blows the brakes off them. So, to me, it's been uh, one of the most frustrating stories of this NBA season, obviously for basketball, but also non-basketball reasons. And, uh, you know, the funny part to me about Kyrie, though, I remember him when he was a Duke commit, you know, so before he even went to Duke, he was a high school player. I saw him play at the uh, the Hoop Summit in, in Portland, Oregon. And at that time, he told everybody that, you know, he wanted to, you know, he was going to major in media and he wanted to be, you know, he was, he was interested in being a media guy. That's what he told us when he was 18, 19 years old. So uh, it's amazing how far his journey has come to be the number one guy who doesn't trust the media and you know calls people pods and everything else. I mean, it's just been a complete reversal from him. Yeah, and, and I believe you wrote about it like last week. Um, but talking about this whole like he's he's playing one night, he's sitting another night. To, I don't want to get into the like socio-political stuff with the vaccine and COVID, but it's almost kind of like a joke, really. Like, it's kind of like, what are we doing here? Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and it, yeah. if I'm Durant and if I'm, if especially if I'm Durant or Harden too, it's kind of like, bro, right? Like at some point it's like, what, what are you doing? What are we doing? Well, Harden's line last night, he was joking, but he's like, I'm going to give Kyrie the shot myself. And it's like, great. You should have said that back in October that maybe this whole thing would have uh, come out and looked a little bit different. Um, you know, my favorite phrase is the greatest ability is availability. Like to get anything done, you have to show up first. If you want to do it as a team, everybody's got to be healthy and they've got to be on the same page rowing together. I think it's just like the fundamental um, philosophy of sports, right? And to have a very, very talented player like Kyrie um, on part-time availability, if that, you know, because if he gets injured, like he had a little ankle thing in Portland and almost didn't play against Chicago. And so you know, now you're in a situation, well, how many games can you really count on him? I think by the end of the season, you know, Brooklyn's going to be lucky if he plays 20, unless they change the vaccination rules or he decides to get vaccinated. Um, that's not good enough if you want to be operating on a championship level in the NBA. It's just not. There's too much competition. There are too many other teams that are all on the same page. Golden State, Phoenix, Milwaukee. Um, I mean, look, not that Memphis is going to make the finals, but I mean, Memphis, perfect example of a, a great team culture right now. And, you know, Brooklyn, they found themselves in this position because they ceded so much authority and power to Kevin Durant and Kyrie to get them to show up there in the first place. Um, they've got inexperienced coaching, inexperienced front office, inexperienced ownership group. And that has shown through at every step of the way, even before this season, in terms of how they were managing minutes last year, how they were man managing injuries in last year's playoffs. They basically just tell the players, hey, you know, we're just window dressing. You guys go ahead and do whatever you want to do. 
And I'm a believer that, you know, if you really want to, uh, you know, win at the highest level in the NBA, it doesn't have to be like the San Antonio Spurs, where they've got this like incredibly powerful coach patriarch and incredibly strong, uh, you know, front office and everything like that. But you do need to have checks and balances where the players um, are not just allowed to do whatever the heck they want and, and make all these key decisions where you do have empowered coaching staff, empowered front office, empowered ownership group. And I think, um, you know, that's the one thing that's come back to bit Kev, uh, by Kevin Durant with his decision to go there and leave Golden State is, uh, you know, it's there's been a little bit too much chaos, uh, way more than necessary in Brooklyn over these last two years. And it's a testament to how good he is that they're still title contenders right now. <laughs> uh, you know, if KD wasn't one of the very, 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 very best players in basketball, uh, this would be a team that would probably be struggling to keep its head above water. Yeah, and I remember back like when it all went down, um, you were pretty critical of the decision and the fit. And <laughs> yeah. obviously, there's some vindication now, but it's y- you hate to see it's it. It's what but... you don't want to be right about, though, man. Right. You know, it's like I, I was upset. I was calling it buddy ball and saying, look, don't just go play with your friends. Like, try to go to a situation that's going to really help you further your legacy, win as much as possible. And I mean, even just bringing DeAndre Jordan along for that ride and having it be like a big two and a half. I mean, that was just so transparently silly and and didn't need to happen. And uh, yeah, so far, like Kyrie has proven to be exactly as untrustworthy as I feared um, when they made that decision. But that's not what you want for these guys. I mean, we all want to see even Kyrie, you know, I want to be able to see him do what he does well at a high level every single night. And we're just not getting that right now. And it's a it's a dang shame. Yeah. And I guess for, you know, I want to be conscious of, of your time as well. And obviously there's so many Duke guys out there. We can't hit on all of them, but might've buried the lead a little bit. So recently uh, <laughs> Atlanta Hawks trade Cam Reddish right to the Knicks. And now we have RJ Cam, two thirds of the, of the big three from that 2019 team. What do you see for that? Personally, I love it for the Knicks. Um, I think uh, they're going to really like Cam, especially if he can continue to shoot close to 40% from three and play good defense. Finishing at the rim, obviously a lot to, to be desired there, but just initial thoughts from your end. What are you? What's your takeaways from Atlanta side or the Knicks side? Well, I think it's great to have this through the Duke context because you know Cam is just that physical specimen, uh, specimen pro- uh, prospect, right? Where he's coming in and it's just like, wow, prototype. Like this guy is going to be you know big, big time player, projected lottery pick. He's got all the physical tools you could want. He looks great on paper. And he's still that same guy three years later. And he's still facing those same questions that he probably faced when he was going to Duke initially in terms of like, well, is he just going to be a tease or is he actually going to wind up delivering on all this potential that he's had all the way through? There's been only a few flashes in Atlanta. And I think the main takeaway from this trade and why uh, you know New York's even able to grab him here there's real questions about whether people want to play with Trey Young. You know, they have not had a good season. They had a, a great half season last year and a really memorable postseason run. And Trey had his fingerprints all over that. But, you know, again, why does Cam Reddish want to leave this burgeoning uh, young all-star who's going to be like second in uh, Eastern Conference all-star votes? Why wouldn't he be, you know, pushing to stay and, and doing everything he possibly can to be part of that core? Why is John Collins, you know, complaining about his touches, you know, multiple times this week? I mean, we're just getting a lot of smoke coming out of Atlanta about, okay, are people happy in that environment or not? And I think that reflects on Trey Young uh, in terms of his role with that group. But for Cam, I think it's a better opportunity. 
Um, obviously, it's a, a bigger stage in New York than Atlanta, for sure. So if he hits, you know, the star power is going to be gigantic. I think a lot of people have drawn that connection with him and RJ. You know, it's a familiar face. Um, and, and and they need help um, in that particular spot. Now, they've had, uh, you know, some guys who are playing some pretty big minutes. You know, so he's still going to be finding himself fighting for opportunities, I think. Uh, but I would rather be doing that on a Knicks team that is, you know, going to be trying to hang in the playoff mix this year, as opposed to an Atlanta team that's just been really wayward, directionless, and they kind of look like they checked out on each other. So, you know, for Cam, it's an opportunity to earn his next contract. And I do think, you know, you're going to want to play well in the playoffs. You're going to want to have a nice stretch run to really cash in um, if you're in his spot. And I think New York gives him a better chance to do that than Atlanta did. Yeah, it'll be interesting, too, to see how uh, Thibs uses him to that big defensive athletic wing. Um, I think that will be a really fruitful relationship. Um, last guy I want to kind of highlight specifically, we've talked about Memphis kind of in detail a little bit. Tyus Jones, uh, one of my oh, favorite yeah. Duke players. Uh, we talked about Leitner earlier. Tyus is right there with him in terms of the like statistically the most clutch season ever at Duke. Um, and he's just heady, always makes the right play. I think he's like, been at the top or led the league and like assist attorney over ratio like his entire career um and i love morant i'm a big job fan but no there wasn't enough talk about when jaw went out how all of a sudden the defense got like vastly improved um they had a great record with tyus leading it i think chris vernon at the mismatch was talking about uh three-point defense and didn't mention tyus which was a little kind of odd to me considering how you know randomized three-point defense really is but what, what are your thoughts on Tyus? Do you see him as that perfect complement to Ja? Or would he be a type that could go somewhere like Boston and play a big role? Well, Tyus is going to have the opportunity, I, I would expect, to get some really you know big-time offers as he continues to progress through his career. I mean, you, you hear what people are talking about for a player like Jalen Brunson in Dallas, where maybe he's going to get like a, I don't know, a $20 million offer per year uh, coming up this summer. I've, I've heard people talking about that. It's like, well... I mean, who would you prefer? Ty is right there on that level. I mean, both those players are just awesome at what they do. They're so trustworthy. They keep you organized. And I thought the turning point for Memphis's season was actually when Ja got injured. And I panicked. And I was like, oh, no, Memphis is going to fall to pieces without Ja. He's done so much. He should be the most improved player starting in the All-Star game, all that kind of stuff. And he goes out with this knee tweak. And it's like, well, the wheels are going to fall off. And instead, they didn't skip a beat. They were awesome. They tightened up on defense. They were even better on that end. And, um, you know, Tyus just does what he does. I love that you can play him with Jaw, or, you know, you put him on the court when Jaw's off either way, um, and you're going to have success. And he's just a player, so few mistakes. I love low mistake uh, players. You know, even if that brings down their ceiling a little bit, when you're talking about role guys or supporting cast guys, that's really what you're looking for if you want to have a playoff team. You can completely picture, and I'm sure you know, you've already done this in your mind's eye too, you can completely picture this guy hitting gigantic three-pointers to win a playoff game, right? Like the ball swings to him late in the game, three minutes left, everybody's loading up on jaw, he kicks out to Tyus, bam, splash, you know, the Grizzlies take game four. I mean, it's like you can already imagine this happening, you know, four months in advance. And so I can't wait to see where this Grizzlies season goes. And I do think he's one of their unsung heroes. It's the tricky part with Memphis, though. They have so many good players. It's hard to even remember to compliment all of them, right? It's like you want to give all the credit to Ja because he deserves a lot of it. But then you want to do the, well, what about Desmond Bain? Should he be an all-star level player? He's having a great season. Nobody really saw him coming. 
Then you want to do the what about Jaron Jackson Jr. because uh, you know he's finally starting to you know pull things together in in his uh, third uh, season or fourth season, I should say, um, you know, in the front court. But you know, don't sleep on Stephen Adams, great screen setter, and and he's huge for their rebounding rate and all that. You just go right down the list. I mean, Melton. Uh, Tillman, Clark, I mean, all these guys, even Zaire Williams is starting to have some good moments for them uh, here over the last couple of weeks, uh, just because they've, they've needed some, uh, you know, some fill in players at, at different spots. So um, it's very easy for Tyus to get lost in the shuffle. And I think uh, Duke fans are right to scream. Hey, wait a minute. Don't forget about this guy. Yep. Yeah. I really hope that uh, he seems to have really carved out a role. I was a little nervous, you know, when he first entered the league, just due to size and some athletic limitations, but He's really kind of found a found a role in Memphis, and I'd, I'd like to see him stay there. Um, especially, I'd, I really would like to see this young core at Memphis play out. I think they're one of the most exciting teams to watch. They're a league pass team, um, you know. So, Duke fans definitely check that out. I want to transition and talk about uh, Bubble Ball to give us some time. But right before I do that, we were talking offline briefly about Paolo. So, I wanted to give you an opportunity, Ben, to kind of you know talk a little bit about how you see Paolo in the NBA? Well, I'm sure you guys uh, watch him a lot more closely than I do. And I was going back through clips of him this morning because the the comp that I just keep hearing over and over is like Tobias Harris. And I definitely can see some of that because of just the body type. Um, and just, you know, because of, you know, the you know mostly offense focus, you know, solid shooter can score from a lot of different places. Um, but that just doesn't feel very charitable. Like, I feel like that might be a little bit too skeptical because I mean, what was Tobias Harris like in college? I don't even really remember, but I don't think he was on Palo's level. Was he, I mean, maybe you, uh, you would be able to, to provide some insight there. The guy who I was starting to think about was actually like college aged mellow. And obviously mellow had one of the greatest seasons ever in college. So it's not really fair to compare anyone to that. But it's the the bully ball aspect to what Paolo does. You know, it's it's the thickness, it's driving on people, powering through people, uh, you know, backing them down a little bit, getting to his shots, and then maybe the soft touch uh, stuff from you know different places on the court was kind of you know where my mind was going. I don't think he's going to be that good. I mean, that's a ridiculous standard to kind of hold anybody to. I mean, first ballot Hall of Famer and one of the NBA's all time leading scorers and everything else, but. I, I think that most people tend in their mind's eye at this point to focus on later career mellow because that's what we've remembered for like the last 10 years. And I'm not necessarily comparing him to that version. I'm more thinking about like the college version where there were some, uh, you know, there were some above the rim dunks for mellow back in those days. And, and Paolo likes to do that as well. And it was mostly just kind of like the physicality and, and the body type, um, you know, that three, four, just, you know, lean on you and, and get where he wants to go and kind of impose his will at the, at the college level that had my mind churning, but I don't know, does any of this make sense or no? I think so. Um, I think I would personally put, and I know Raul's even higher on it than I am. I think I'd put Paolo's defense right now, probably ahead of Melo, which is kind of hard because Syracuse plays that zone. So it's really kind of hard to tell what that's going to equate to going forward. Um, but I like the the physicality from both. Um, Roa, did you want to chime in on that just in regarding the mellow comparison? Yeah, I mean, when Paolo gets switched on to a guard or whether he's guarding a center, um, he seems to hold his own pretty well. Um, his rotations are pretty solid. So I do see him as having a higher defensive ceiling, but I could definitely see on offense where the mellow comparison would be coming from. So. 
Well, so where do you guys have Paolo on your like your boards? I mean, are are you in the he's got to be the number one pick camp, or do you hear the counter arguments for other guys? I mean, where are you guys coming down on that one? Um, yeah, definitely not number one. I'll be honest. Um, <laughs> Duke fans are not going to want to hear that. Uh, maybe they'll turn off the podcast right now, but I don't know. I I just feel like Chet Holmgren's upside is too tantalizing, and Jabari Smith is really interesting too. So. Those would be the two guys I'd take over him, I think. Um, I mean, even A.J. Griffin at Duke has started to come on a lot, and his shot's looking really smooth, and he's kind of more of a you know 6'6", more conventional wing, but it wouldn't surprise me if at the end of the season I was higher on him than Paolo as well. So, Yeah, I like the A.J. nod. Um, I don't know. It's I could see it this year because I don't think anyone's really separated themselves. We don't have a Zion out there. Um, you know, I could see depending on the team that gets it, the fit. Personally, I have him above Holmgren right now. Um, but the kid from Auburn looks fantastic. So, you know, that that's and he's getting all the buzz uh, right now. <laughs> rightfully so. Rightfully so. But we've yeah. seen in flashes from Paolo that first half against Gonzaga. There's moments where he's grabbing the ball off the rim, going full court, dropping it on a dime, or pulling up for three in transition. Uh, you, you see the flash in the pan. I'm not sure if it's enough to warrant going number one, but you know, right now it's all about potential anyway in the NBA, especially from a draft standpoint. So, you know, why not Paolo? I guess. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm from the Pacific Northwest, and I did hear from a lot of people over these last couple of years, just kind of chirping and buzzing with excitement about Palo. I I can't really remember the last guy from up that way who got just the local basketball community as excited as he did, and that's funny because they fall in love with the Jamal Crawford like ball dominant guards. That's usually who you know everyone up there is is kind of looking for, like the next Crawford. Um, you know, and and in Portland, it's like the next Damon Stoudemire, right? And uh, so I thought it was, you know, interesting that, a, you know, a guy completely different frame type um, winds up going all the way across the country, just had so many people excited up there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Kevin Love, maybe, or because he's from the Pacific Northwest, right? Yeah. So it's interesting. There was a love hate thing there with Kevin Love, right? So me, uh, because he went to UCLA and is, you know, is, he's related to the Beach Boys. And so people in Oregon kind of viewed him suspiciously. He went to this private high school, or not private high school, but a very ritzy public high school that, uh, you know, did not uh, have a lot of fans uh, at the rest of the, the state, I should say. So um, he was not as beloved as you would think. You know, people always want to say like, oh, bring Kevin Love home in a trade to the Trailblazers. And, you know, you ask the Trailblazers fans, and they're like, well, you know, we're actually okay on that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, I know we're starting to get kind of near the end of time here, but I want to talk a little bit about bubble ball and I'll let Raul take this, but first just to set the stage for some of the listeners. Uh, so Ben was in the bubble in Orlando for the, that was the 2020 season. These things are starting to get kind of, kind of crazy on us. Uh, so if you're not familiar, pretty much the NBA decided, let's all go to Disney world, except for it was before the playoffs instead of like after you win the title. Right. Uh, so they're all crammed in there, a lot of rules, a lot of regulations. It was very unique for me following along with Ben and Andrew on the podcast hearing about it. And so we want to kind of talk about the book, what went into it, your experiences with all of that. So I'll hand that to Raul because he's our resident writer as well. So he knows a little bit more about that stuff than I do. Um, so Raul, I'll give it to you to kind of to jump into that. Well, I guess the first place to start is at what point 
did you realize this had to be a book? Was that always the plan when you were going down there? Um, you know, I just finished reading the book. I think about a hundred pages in, somebody says to you, another uh, reporter or something, uh, this will be a great story for your book. I think it was uh, during, <laughs> during the protest when the game shut down for a few days, right? Uh, yep. But that was the first mention I remember reading that it was going to be a book, but clearly you had already told people at that point. Well, you know, I like to compare myself to Forrest Gump. I'm just randomly stumbling into these big moments. The, the Zion shoe blowing out is a great example of my Forrest Gump abilities. So I did not go down to the bubble with any uh, intention of writing a book. I went down there scared out of my mind about COVID because, you know, there was no vaccine at that point. Just completely terrified, not sure how it was going to play out. Didn't know if it was actually going to work. Um, you know, I wound up being down there 93 days. And in the first couple of days, I was kind of writing almost diary-like dispatches for the Washington Post because there was so much curiosity about like how they set it up, what were the rules. And I was hearing from people all over the world and, you know, doing interviews with people. And frankly, they were asking me like, you know, do you think you're going to die? Like, I mean, it was, yeah, it was a, a really tricky time period, I think, for society and just for anybody who was trying to like operate a business like the NBA was. And so those diaries wound up getting very well read. I was just, you know, lucky that a lot of people found them and were sharing them. And, you know, an agent reached out, a literary agent, and said, you know, this could be a book. And so this was about, you know, two weeks into the experience. And at that point, I was like, well, I've always wanted to write a book, never really been able to figure out what I would write a book about. But this is such rare, unique access. I'm one of like 15 people from a media standpoint who's going to be down here for this entire thing, just, you know, two plus two equals four, we should do this. And it came together very quickly. So within the first month of me being down there, I, I did know, uh, you know, we, we had the offer signed, agreed, and, you know, we actually wanted to put it out there quickly, hoping that nobody else would do it because we were a little bit concerned, you know, there's going to be three or four different books about this because it's such a zany experience. And so, uh, you know, it was kind of a rush process, but, you know, the, um, the, the shutdown you're mentioning, the, the Milwaukee Bucks deciding not to take the court, that happened about halfway through the process. So I, I did already have everything lined up and start preparing, uh, you know, to compile material and save my notes and save all my interviews and videos and all that good stuff. Um, I had already, you know, started to plan and do that, uh, you know, within like a week or two of being there. And, um, you know, a lot of the book is based on the writing that I did for the Washington Post. I was very grateful that they allowed me to take on the book project and, and use a lot of that material that I wrote for them in the book as well. But um, I view the book as a time capsule. Like I want basketball fans in 10 or 15, 20 years to look back and be like, why the heck did LeBron win one of his titles at Disney World? That makes no sense whatsoever. And then they'll be able to have kind of an up close and personal view of, of what that was like. The most impressive thing to me reading the book was just the level of detail, whether it's about the negotiations between the uh, players union and uh, the owners and, or whether it's, uh, you know, just the day-to-day -day stuff, the uh, you're just walking around the compound or whatever you want to call it. And just the little observations, I guess what I'd want to ask is, were you just walking around with a notepad all day? Do you have a <laughs> notepad in your brain? How, how did you remember all that stuff? Well, I really appreciate you saying that. You know, I would put this back on you. I mean, wouldn't you say that you know your home working environment better than you did before the pandemic, right? Like, don't you know every little nook and cranny and crevice of your home office? 
uh, because you've been trapped inside for the last couple of years. I mean, at least compared to what pre-pandemic life was like. I think that that was a huge part of it. I spent so much time fixating on these minor details, seeking out these different like birds and, uh, you know, uh, you know, flowers that were on the campus because there was literally nothing else for us to do. I could not drive a car and leave the campus, right? I could not walk to a 7-Eleven convenience store. I could not really easily order from restaurants that weren't, uh, you know, Disney uh, approved, like on campus. I could not walk to the arena if I wanted to change it up. I had to take a specific bus every single day. And so it was what you're really experiencing as you read the book is just these very hard and fast routines that I was going through to kind of make it through what was a pretty mentally challenging 93 day experience. And so that's really where the details come from, because, you know, I'm a big uh, walker, you know, I love to try to get, you know, between four and eight miles, basically every single day outside walking. And there was only one place to walk, you know, you're going around on this loop every single day. And I'm seeing Eric Spolstra, I'm seeing Brad Stevens, I'm seeing all these other, um, you know, NBA luminaries getting their exercise in. And they're on the same track as I am because there's just nowhere else to go. <laughs> so uh, I think that's where a lot of the details came. It, it was really a, a response to the confinement that we were experiencing. And uh, how much thought did you give on how to structure the book? Did that kind of happen naturally? Or, I mean, I know you were already writing these kind of diary entries for the Washington Post. So did you just kind of think, I'll just structure it the same way I'll structure my diary and just kind of chronological and keep it simple. Yeah, it's, it's, it's mostly chronological, but I did want to introduce the reader to the environment. Like I got to my first impressions when I was leaving, um, the quarantine that we had to, you know, we were in a hotel room for a week and it was a pretty tiny hotel room could not leave for any reason whatsoever. We got to step outside, uh, just to take a, a coronavirus test, you know, so we got about 30 seconds of fresh air every day. Otherwise you're completely confined to that hotel room. So I start the book with that idea of like acclimating yourself to this new environment and then the rest of it's chronological. And I just thought, you know, it was the only way to tell the story, you know, as you're describing, I mean, so many different things happened that there was a lot of nitty gritty reporting I had to do from why did the NBA shut down to how did they come up with the idea for Disney World to how did they convince the players to go along with it? How did they set up the arenas, right? How did they set up the practice spaces? That if I wasn't going chronological, it would just be way too easy to kind of confuse people and, and lose the thread. And so that was the idea. And, and I really want the reader, you know, I hope basketball fans give it a chance because, you know, I'm a basketball nut and I just want, you know, the reader to kind of, you know, feel like they're me, right? You're riding along shotgun on this just weird basketball journey that's never going to happen again. And, uh, you know, it's almost like, you know, I, I'm bringing you along for the ride. Well, I think you succeeded, so... That's one well, good. I appreciate, I appreciate you making it through and uh, it means a lot. And I think just to, to wrap that discussion up, I would, my question is, I'm just a little curious. Um, has it set in at all for you kind of the historical significance of you being down there reporting and then also in the Olympics too, but it's kind of like that as we look back on malice at the palace or the first game, the first baseball game in New York post nine 11, those sorts of kind of monumental historical events and you're kind of there on the ground. Has that set in yet or are we not quite far enough removed? Well, a little bit. I mean, I did do some interviews with like ESPN or NBA TV crews, like while we were down there. And I'm, I'm so fascinated to see that footage whenever they use it. And I wonder, you know, if they wait 10 years, are they going to call me up and do another interview and, and how much are my perspectives going to change on that kind of thing? But 
for, for sure, I knew it was a major, major, um, you know, luxury or whatever you want to call it to be invited. I was pretty excited to go down there and, and see it, uh, because it's a once in a lifetime thing. And I wanted to write the book almost for like my 12 year old self where like, you know, I used to go to the library and, you know, if there was a book about like, Hey, this weird Disney world experiment during a pandemic and LeBron's in it and Giannis is in it. Like that's the exact book that I would have wanted to read as a kid. And so, I try to keep that in mind for like future generations of basketball fans to just have this like original text where they're able to kind of go back to it. Um, you know, at the same time, like we're in the third NBA pandemic season now, you know, I think when we first went to the bubble, we thought, okay, this is just going to be a bridge until, you know, uh, you know, the pandemic's over life's going to get back to normal. And even at the start of this season, you heard the NBA commissioner and the deputy commissioner both say, Hey, we think this season's going to come back much more to normal. And instead, you have this Omicron wave, which has, you know, really caused a lot of disruption for the league over these last, uh, you know, four weeks. So we don't really know how long the pandemic's going to uh, to last, and when it's going to end, and when we're going to be able to really look back on this completely. But I do think the bubble, just by virtue of it being a one-time thing, that all the players, as soon as it was over, they were like, "We're never doing that again." I think that one is going to hold up for history really well, and I, I hope the book, you know, winds up, uh, you know, doing justice to it and. You know, we can look back in like 2040, 2050 and, uh, you know, say, OK, well, this is the document that kind of tells you what it was really like. And, you know, after 10 years, I, I do plan to go back and like maybe try to find my same hotel room, you know, the one I was trapped in for 93 days and just see, has it changed? Is it like what I remember? Maybe you walk that same loop I was talking about earlier and you know, almost like you, you know, you go back to your college campus and, and relive the glory days. But uh not, not too soon. You know, I don't want to go back quite yet. I got plenty of Disney world, uh, you know, over those three months. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Um, well, Ben, thanks again for coming on. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, you know, for everyone out there listening, check out the greatest of all talk, uh, great podcast. Highly recommend it. I'm a subscriber. Also bubble ball. Look for that. Get you a copy. If you're a board member at the devil's we're actually going to do a little bit of a giveaway. So we have several copies of the book we're going to give out. We're also going to do a few six month subscriptions to the podcast. So check us out over there. Um, ben, and I guess my virtual hot ones express or impression, you know, this, this mic, that mic, any mic, tell the people what you got going on, where they can find you. <laughs> well, I appreciate this so much. I really appreciate you guys supporting the projects. I mean, it's WashingtonPost.com slash sports, and I'm on Twitter at Ben Golliver. And uh, like you said, it's greatestofalltalk.com for the podcast. And I, I wish you guys continued success and good health into the new year. Thanks a lot, Ben. Again, we'd like to thank Ben Golliver of the Washington Post. Um, we'll be back at it again next week. So, uh, you know, as always, keep the faces strong and the verb high. Take care, dude. Ben.